0: Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting, and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about IFRS 9 again. So we have spoken about expected credit loss before, but today I'm joined by Marie Kling, who's going to talk to us about classification and measurement in IFRS 9. Welcome to the studio, Marie.
1: Thank you, Ruth. Happy to be here.
0: Although I shouldn't say studio because obviously, you know, I'm in my bedroom. You're probably in your kitchen right? and we're not together, but a pretend studio.
1: Yes, um, I'm in my basement.
0: Wow, the sound quality is very good. <laughs> so let's think about classification and measurement, obviously. There's lots of movement at the moment with loan agreements and borrowers and lenders and maybe changes to terms. We've heard about payment holidays, um, especially, you know, where borrowers are in financial difficulty. So, what? how do you assess all these changes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So maybe I'll start with the lender. So how do you assess sort of loan modification from the lender's perspective? And there's really two elements to consider. One is sort of the accounting for the modification itself. The other is the impact from an expected credit loss perspective. And what's key to remember is that you can't just avoid an impairment loss, i.e. an ECL, just because you're going to modify a loan. But let's start with modification accounting. And then we're gonna look at the uh, ECL implications. So I'll I'll start with an example where a borrower who approaches the bank um, and applies for a deferral of one or more payments um, under his loan agreement for a specific period of time. So i call that a a repayment holiday. The first thing to do is to, to look at the nature of the changes and determine whether it's substantial enough to actually represent an extinguishment of that particular instrument.
0: Okay. So, Keith, first step, extinguishment. What What is that? What do people have to do?
1: Yeah. So, um, IFRS 9 doesn't contain explicit guidance in terms of uh, whether sub- something's substantial enough to represent an extinguishment. So, a sensible approach would be to look at what the principles that are applied to liabilities, so what the borrower would do so you may apply a quantitative 10% test and that sort of compares the present value of the cash flows under the the new terms the revised terms to the ones under the original terms to decide to see whether there's a the difference is greater than 10%. Now it would not be appropriate to conclude that the assets should continue to be recognized solely based on the result of that test. However, there's nothing to preclude anyone uh, from using such a test as an indicator, for example, and maybe alongside other qualitative indicators. So really all relevant factors would need to be considered in the aggregate.
0: OK, so you mentioned the qualitative, I can't say it very well, factors. What do I need to consider?
1: <laughs> yeah, so th- let me give you a couple of examples, hopefully, to, to bring the point home. So l- let's start with an example where the lender agrees to defer some of the payments over a relatively short period of time, let's say six months. Now, this may not be a significant change, right, from a qualitative perspective, particularly where the cash flows under that modified or renegotiated arrangement largely reflect the cash flows that the borrower is likely to be able to pay. Now, on the other hand, you could have a significant extension of terms, let's say a period of a few years. Now, there you may well reach the conclusion that extinguishment or derecognition is appropriate. Now, what's also key to remember is that a concession granted to a borrower who is in financial difficulty, in and of itself, is not an indicator of extinguishment, particularly where the cash flows under the new arrangement, the renegotiated arrangement, really reflect the cash flows that the borrower is likely to be able to pay under the original terms.
0: Okay, so if we wanted to summarize that as a sort of key takeaway for people, us non-FI people that, you know, don't understand all of IFRS 9, tell us what do they need to do? Sure.
1: So really, um, lenders should follow their existing policies for determining whether a modification is substantial i.e. results in derecognition, or whether it is not a substantial modification and results in modification accounting. And I've mentioned the quantitative 10% test. In practice, um, not many lenders actually do use that as an indicator. Okay, okay, perfect. So if we say,
0: let's make the assumption that the asset isn't derecognized because there's not a substantial modification, how does the accounting work for that?
1: Yeah, great question. So again, for a modification that does not result in de-recognition, what the lender would do is recalculate the gross carrying amount by not discounting the revised um, expected cash flows. At the loan's originally effective interest rates and if the payments are deferred for example without any interest this would result in a modification loss for the lender and that would be recognized immediately in profit or loss. What's also key to remember I touched on ECL originally is that these revised cash flows should not consider expected credit losses but I'll come back to that um, later after we've covered the uh, the modification model.
0: Okay so let's keep Keep going with our modification model. I mean, lots of things are going on where some of these changes that are brought in actually aren't a negotiation necessarily between the lender and the borrower, and it could actually be imposed by the government law and law and things in certain jurisdictions. Would that change any of these considerations?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and we're certainly seeing a lot of um, measures being taken by governments in different jurisdictions. So, so if no amendment is made directly to the loan agreement. Uh, The key question is whether that's a modification or not for purposes of IFRS 9 and frankly this probably will depend on the facts and circumstances of each um, jurisdiction. Now, what's also key to remember is even if you don't get to modification accounting, it could also represent a change in your estimated cash flows under the instrument. And even if you reach that conclusion, it would also lead to remeasurement. And so in either case, the lender would have to recalculate the gross carrying amount of the loan by discounting the payments at the loan's original effective interest rate. We sometimes call that the QM uh, the catch up if it's not a modification accounting. And the, the resulting loss for the lender um, should be recognized immediately in profit and loss. As a result, the loss really is not spread forward, but you're, you're booking it as a, as a one time. Okay,
0: so let me just check I've got it right. The measurement impact will be the same regardless of whether the payment holiday is a modification Or I think you said a change to the estimated cash flows of the original loan.
1: Yeah, that's right. Either modification accounting or what we sort of call this QM catch up method. So a change to the estimated cash flows. Yes.
0: Brilliant. Now you mentioned it earlier. We've already had a whole podcast on ECL, but let's talk about it some more because we love it so much. (laughs) Let's go back to what you were saying about the implications on ECL. Could you could you tell us how that works?
1: Sure. So at the date of the modification, what the lender will have to do is also determine the classification of that loan from a staging perspective, from an ECL perspective. And this will depend on whether the modification is granted to a borrower in financial difficulty or another borrower that's not in financial difficulty, for example, where um, blanket holiday payments are provided to all borrowers. But let's, uh, let's focus on an example where the modification is actually given to a borrower who is in financial difficulty. So you'd have to assess the three stages of the ECL. So let's start with stage three. In many cases, the loan will meet the definition of a, what we call a credit impaired loan because that payment holiday is granted to a borrower in financial difficulty. And so that, that concession, that holiday, has a detrimental effect on the cash flows. So the loan here would be in stage three. Now, let's compare and contrast that with stage two. Um, if the loan does not meet the definition of credit impaired, the loan would be in stage two. And that would be the case if the customer is not in significant financial difficulty. For example, he's just getting a short-term payment holiday where the payments are only deferred and interest even accrues on the deferral. So here, there would not be a detrimental impact to the cash flows. If the concession now is granted to a borrower that is in financial difficulty, that then stage one would not be appropriate. So we can put stage one aside. Okay, I think that makes sense. So
0: what, what do we need to think about after the modification has happened?
1: Yeah, so after the modification, what's key to remember is that that modified loan would not automatically be considered to have lower credit risk. The, the lender would have to compare the current credit risk so now taking into consideration the modified cash flows to the credit risk of the original unmodified cash flows um, at the beginning. So if the lender determines that the loan is not credit impaired at the reporting date, but credit risk has still increased significantly, the lender would continue to measure the expected credit losses at the lifetime expected credit loss amount. What, What you'd also have to remember is that the borrower would need to demonstrate consistently good behavior over a period of time before the credit risk is considered to have decreased and the loan could actually move from stage three to stage two or even from stage two to stage one um so a history of missed or incomplete payments that would not typically be erased simply by making one one payment on time
0: okay perfect so if you have one thing to tell people on uh, the measurement of ECL Um, specifically on the perspective after a modification, what would it be?
1: Yeah, the key point to remember is that the ECL cannot be nil because the expected cash flows used for purposes of the ECL measurement actually take into account the possibility of credit losses. Whereas when you recompute the revised gross carrying amount for modification accounting, the expected credit losses will not be taken into account.
0: Okay, and uh, something I think people forget about, but we should also think about, is anything they need to think about for presentation.
1: Yeah, the, the modification gain or loss or the movements on the uh, ECL allowance should probably be presented in a way that's relevant to the understanding of the entity's performance. This could result in the modification um, loss uh, being presented gross or net, and you'd probably have to take materiality into consideration as well.
0: Perfect. So I think that we started with looking from the lender's perspective on these modifications or assessing if it's a modification. What do you need to do if you're on the borrower side?
1: Yeah, so now that we've focused on the lender and let's look at the borrower. So the guidance on the liability side for the borrower is is similar, similar concepts, but there are some subtle differences. Now, similar to the asset side, your first question is have those terms substantially changed right? or they're substantially different from what they used to be now what's clear on the liability side unlike the asset side is you have to do a quantitative test that's what we call the 10 percent test again and that test you're comparing the discounted present value of the cash flows under the new terms using the original effective interest rate to the uh, remaining cash flows of the original uh, liability, so the old terms. And if that difference is greater than 10%, then the recognition applies. So you have extinguishment accounting. Now, what's unclear in the literature is whether this quantitative analysis is just an example such that you could also do a broader analysis, take into account qualitative factors as well. So we we believe there's an accounting policy choice here um, that the company would have to follow. And Obviously, in the current environment, the company would need to follow its existing policy. And in practice, we think most companies do a, a quantitative and a qualitative test, such that when either one is met, your recognition is actually applied.
0: Okay, brilliant. So you've got some more tests to do. Um, and then once you've concluded, if you conclude its modification, how does the accounting work for that?
1: Yeah, so if modification accounting applies, the accounting would be similar to what I've just described for the lender. You'd compute the present value of your modified cash flows discounted at the original effective interest rate, compare that to your carrying amount and recognize the difference in profit and loss. So now in the current environment, this would presumably be a gain for the borrower. Now the other thing to remember, right, if described ECL for the lender. Obviously, on the liability side, there's no impairment considerations. It's just modification or extinguishment accounting that we have to worry about.
0: Brilliant. Okay. So, we understand now what we need to do with um, some of these changes to the Changes to the agreements between lenders and borrowers from both sides—that's really helpful. Does COVID nineteen have any other impacts that people need yeah. to? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Definitely, we're spending a lot of time on on modifications because they're uh, they're popular in the current environment. Mm-hmm. But the other thing to remember is is reclassification of assets between categories. And, and now I'm on the lender side again, so. Again, we've had some questions come in around business model under IFRS 9. So, let's say an entity has assets currently under sort of what we call the hold to collect business model, but then decides to sell them, maybe as a result of COVID-19. Is this considered a change in a business model? Now, the answer to the question is very facts and circumstances driven, but I just want to make two points on that particular question. First, on IFRS 9, you have to remember that some sales are consistent with a hold to collect business model. For example, if those sales are motivated by an increasing credit risk um, on that particular instrument. Other types of sales can also be consistent with a business model. For example, if they're insignificant in values or even sales that are infrequent, even if they're significant in value. The second point to remember when you're talking about business model changes is that IFRS 9 has very specific criteria to determine if a change in the business model actually occurred. So the threshold is pretty high. Um, Changes to business models are expected to be infrequent. Um, The change has to be determined by the entity's senior management. It must be significant to the entity's operations. And it also has to be evident to external parties. So again, it's a pretty high hurdle um, to demonstrate a change in business model.
0: Perfect. And is we're coming to the end now. Is there anything else people should think about? And if you don't say disclosure, Marie, you're not you know, <laughs> you're not part of the party because that's all we said in every other podcast. <laughs>
1: You know me, Ruth. I, I don't want to disappoint you. So yes, yeah. disclosures are key, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, and uh, particular in times of uncertainty, disclosures will be key. So in addition to sort of the what we call the IS-1 um, disclosures about risk and uncertainties, there's also specific disclosures for financial instruments so around financial risks, so your credit risk, particularly in this environment, but liquidity risk also, um, currency risk or other type of price risk, such as commodity price risk, for example. And also sort of the policies and processes around uh, the management of those risks. Now, what's also key sort of for um, on on the borrower side is liquidity risk, right? Where um, an entity may well have been affected Uh, by COVID-19, and the level of cash inflows has been significantly reduced. Its ability to access cash uh, may be severely impacted, and there also may be impacts just on, you know, any receivables that are factored, or even supplier finance uh, from a corporate perspective. So all that would need to be um, would need to be properly disclosed.
0: Brilliant. So lots of things to think about there, and thank you so much, Marie. IFRS 9 always baffles me slightly, maybe not as much as IFRS 17, but still, you know, I I need need your help to get me through. So I think that was really helpful to give people an idea of, you know, if they do have a loan or some sorts of borrowing and there's some changes to that, what they need to think through. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, there is also some we're adding to our COVID-19 accounting in-depth, which is on Inform. And there's lots of frequently asked questions that we keep adding in these areas. So Marie mentioned there, you know, we're getting lots of questions in. As we get a question, we're putting the answers in. So if you want to read about those as well, please go to PwC inform. Um you're gonna come back to us soon, Marie. I hope and talk about what's next on our list hedging? Um, <laughs> oh, yes yes. <laughs>
1: I'll
0: be back. <laughs> oh good. Come back soon and to all our listeners thank you for listening and stay safe. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Waterhouse Cooper's LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.